We are live in the Beguino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Dinner with DiMaggio, the publisher, Simon & Schuster, the authors, Dr. Rock Positano and John Positano. Please join me as we welcome Rock and John to the clubhouse. More importantly, congratulations for actually getting me to go to something public. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you in here who know me, I'm notoriously, I wouldn't say antisocial, but I'm not one who, uh, who goes to too many of these uh, outside gatherings, so thank you for being here. Thank well, you for uh, having me. My, our, our good uh, co-friend Karen Duffy never told me that, so, <laughs> <laughs> but, so thank, thank you uh, doubly for coming. Well, it's okay. It's nice to be here. It's nice to see a lot of uh, familiar faces, so oh. it always helps. You'd be surprised how many people you, you come in contact with, including one of my dear colleagues, Dr. Mark Brenner, who's one of my teachers coming up. Mark, thanks for being here. It's a great honor to be with you, Rob. Thanks so much. Thank you know, but it's a lot of fun, but thank you. Oh, thank you. So let's fire away. All right, we're going to get going. And just very briefly, for those, uh, mainly for those listening to the podcast, just a little mini bio. Uh, Dr. Rock Positano is the founder and director of the non-surgical foot and ankle service at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City, where he has been on staff since 1991. He graduated from Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Positano is a critically is a clinical assistant professor at Weill Cornell Medical College. He is internationally known for his non-surgical approach for the treatment of foot disorders. And now we can get into it. So uh, before we get really into the heart of the book, which is really, uh, it's, it's really a beautiful book. Thank and, you. and we'll get into why I say that. But if you could just tell us briefly how this book project came to be. Well, I think after spending as much time as we did with uh, Mr. DiMaggio and having the opportunity to have a seat at the dinner table with him, I felt it was appropriate that the name of the book will be Dinner with DiMaggio. Uh, not everyone saw it that way, but after reading some of the, uh, the manuscripts and the, tr and the transcripts of the things that transpired, people saw that indeed what made Mr. DiMaggio so different was that he valued the, the, the old value, the home value of sitting down at the dinner table and talking about things. It could be anything. It could be life, baseball, politics, business, sports, you name it, you know. And I realized that after all the years of seeing the things that were written about him, that no one ever really had the opportunity to see him in a different type of a way, which means he was a, a loving father to his son, even though people seemed to think he wasn't. He was an unbelievably great grandfather to his great-granddaughters and his granddaughters. Uh, he was the best friend in the world, very loyal, uh, very compassionate, and he cared about people. And he, he, his biggest love in his life was his love of children to make sure that children were well taken care of. And as many of you know, he, is the, he was one of the founders of the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Florida. And that was one of his sterling accomplishments. As he had once alluded to, certainly bigger than his nine championships, his 10 pennants, his 56 game hitting streak, and the fact that he batted over 300 for most of the seasons that he played. So I think at the end of the day, this man was far, far more important than just a baseball player. And I say just a baseball player with respect to uh, colleagues of his who still play baseball. But he was much bigger than that. And he was also much bigger than, you know, his nine-month marriage to the most beautiful, famous starlet in the world, okay, Marilyn Monroe. And I think what people 
tended to not see were the wonderful things that this man did. And what made him tick? Well, a lot of things made him tick, you know. But at the end of the day, he was, he was a, a friend, he was someone's grandfather, he was someone's father, he was someone's uncle. And he took that role just as seriously as he did playing center field for the New York Yankees. So I, fed, I said to myself, and one day my brother John and I would talk, I said, you know what? All those dinner time conversations where he would talk with me about things, and many of the, the, uh, the dinners were just the two of us. Many of the dinners were with a group of uh, friends from Westchester. I used to call them the Bad Pack, a bunch of guys from up, up in Westchester from this place called <laughs> Alex and Henry's. And it was kind of fun just sitting at the table and listening to him speak about everything. And of course, you know, one thing was for sure, you know, there are certain things you would never go near. I'm sure many of you in the, in the room realize what those subjects were. Uh, but of course, at the end of the day, if he opened up the discussion about something, uh, you would either go with it or just shut up and pretend like you didn't hear it. So it was pretty much one of those situations. But the whole premise of dinner with DiMaggio was to get him to the dinner table. And one of the complaints that he always made about people that were trying to write things about him was that he said, you know, Doc, not for anything. These people that have written articles and books about me never even had the opportunity to sit down and have a cup of coffee with me which I thought was kind of telling in itself. So in that respect, you know, it put us in a very unique uh, position to be able to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with this man and also to learn from him, too. I mean, he was so unbelievably brilliant. I mean, he was more than just a brilliant baseball player. This man knew about politics. He knew about business. He knew about the arts. He knew about movies, entertainment. I would watch him pretty much dance from one area to another and actually asked the right questions to people who were quote-unquote authorities in that particular area. And I was always amazed by that, about how brilliant he was. And that made perfect sense because to be uh, you know, a, a hitter or a player as talented as a Williams or a DiMaggio required more than just physical skills. I mean, having 20-10 vision is nice. Uh, being able to run from first to third is nice. But these two guys, what people never really appreciate was how intelligent they were. And remember, they were playing baseball in a time when there were no computers. The, uh, the statistics from a game would take a week or two to get. So it's not like you knew what to do. But I remember once asking both of them, we were at a bat dinner, actually the last bat dinner before Ted took ill, I said, can I ask you guys a question? I said, you know, no offense, I'm, I'm a fan of you both as people. And that was the advantage I had. I didn't know them as baseball players. And that was two things made. That made them either A, more comfortable with me or more uncomfortable with me because they didn't have the same starstruck you know, star allure that they have over people who see them. So I was, always, I was never afraid to ask them maybe the questions that were a little different. And they both had the same answer. You know, Williams was right out. Williams says, let me tell you something, Doc. Pitches are the stupidest, damnedest people in the world. <laughs> and Joe says, yeah, you know, Ted's right, Doc. And I said, well, why is that? He goes, because they, they forget the pitches that they threw you the last time that you put the ball over the fence. But we, I mean, DiMaggio and Williams would actually remember pitching combinations, what, were they, what they were going to be thrown, if it was first and third with two balls or one strike. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, they had computer minds, these guys. And, I mean, again, I mean, forget about physical ability. I mean, there's no question about that. But they were truly brilliant, brilliant people. And, and as, I, as I said to someone, I said, you know, Joe and Ted could have easily gone to Yale and Harvard and graduated summa cum laude because they were so intelligent. So I think that's really what I took away from all the conversations I had uh, with, with Joe at the dinner table. But I, I felt that was the, the best place to do it. Because when he was at a function or if he was at the stadium, 
it was a different Dimaggio. I mean, at the stadium, you, he, he made you know that that was his place. That was his theater. That was his arena. He didn't care who you were. That was his place. So anyone who ever had the chance to spend some time with him knew that when you got to the Yankee Stadium, you were dealing with a different Joe DiMaggio, which was very, very interesting. So again, but of course, you know, we, we had a different side to him. We saw the more personal side to him. Uh, the, only, you know, the only time I've ever seen him uh, get a little angry was when we were once down in the press room at the stadium, the old stadium, obviously, and we're sitting there in a conversation and I see the expression on Joe's face change. Like, what, this guy see a ghost? You know, and I see this man approaching, very nice, very sweet looking, and without even missing a beat, Joe looks at the guy and says, listen, I've got nothing to say to you, Richard Ben Kramer. He goes, and plus you're, you know, you're interfering with my private time with my dear friend, Dr. Positano, of which Richard Ben Kramer says, oh, you're the guy that won't return my phone calls. <laughs> so he said it right in front of Joe, and then he walked away, and Joe says, did he try to call you, Doc? I said, yeah, Joe, he's been trying to call me for the last three years. I said, but I got nothing to tell him. But it was interesting because when he was at the stadium, even with Mr. Steinbrenner, there was a certain understanding that he was, he was the king of the palace and you had to show him that respect. So that, that was the nice thing about it, seeing that really personal side to him. Uh, and again, very few of us were fortunate to have seen that. But one of the things we mentioned in the book was what made him so uh, intelligent was that he controlled all of his environments. You know, he was like a general. I used to call him like, in a way I used to make fun of him, I used to call him Napoleon because he would control where his spots would be. And he was, he was brilliant at compartmentalizing his life. He had a life in Florida, he had a life in San Francisco, and he had a life in New York. And what happened in San Francisco never necessarily made it back to New York. What happened in New York never necessarily made it back to Florida. So he was able to control pretty much all of his interactions with people. So much to the point that, you know, after we lost him, I had received a phone call from a guy who says, you know, I need to see you, Rock. And I said, well, who is it? And he says, his name is Joe Nacchio. And he's been Joe's best friend for the last 60-something years. And I'm saying, okay, Joe Nacchio. I said, with all the, the thousands of hours I spent with Joe D, I never heard him mention Joe Nacchio. So I said, what do I have to lose? He's Joe's age. What could he possibly do? I said, I'll meet you for lunch. <laughs> and I showed him, I showed him you know, the absolute respect. And we sat down at the lunch table. And he starts telling me things about me. So I said, okay, this guy's real. So I said, Joe, you have to forgive me. I said, you know, I never, never heard of you. And not that you weren't important to Joe, because I found out that he was one of the people that helped Joe through a really rough time in his life. But it was a perfect example of, of the DiMaggio compartmentalization strategy, where he would compartmentalize different things. And, but after that, you know, we, we got a chance to catch up, and I found out really what a, a really a great human being Joe Nacchio was. And, you know, that was one of the types of things I always found brilliant with him. Hey, Joe. So, I mean, that was what I found to be very interesting, is that he had that brilliance. He just knew how to control things. And I don't mean in a, in a, in a negative way, but just to control things where he had a level of comfort. I think that's really what this was about. Well, as you mentioned Yankee Stadium and this and dinner and coffee and, and all these things, it brings back all the, uh, these fantastic stories that you tell throughout the book. And we're not going to be able to get into even a fraction of the stories. You're going to have to read the book for that. Uh, but selfishly, I want to thank you because, as, as I was uh, saying before, we have an event pretty much every week for three months. It's kind of our prime season right now, and mm -hmm. I overdid it. We have a, so I have to read the book every week to prepare for that. So I, it's an event starting tomorrow. I have to start with next week already. And 
they're quote-unquote baseball books. And uh, this is not a baseball book. I, I took it, you could tell me if I'm incorrect, but I took it uh, basically as a love story. And I don't mean that in a Hollywood way, where it's all wine and roses. It, there's some very tough times. There's a time when he shuts you out. Uh, but, uh, which we don't need to get into, but that, you, well, know, you, you get into it Siberia, in the book. Siberia was very interesting for that three months. It was kind of interesting, but uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I made that clear to, to some of my colleagues that this is definitely not a book about baseball. It's not a book about hitting. It's not a book about curveballs. Not a book, but about how do you how do you play a certain player or position? It's really a snapshot of Joe DiMaggio's New York life in the last nine to ten years of his life. And what makes it special and different is that it shows people how he really wanted to be when he was in New York. He wasn't able to enjoy certain things when he was a player because anywhere he would go, there would be a, a you know a mob outside around the corner. So. The last eight or nine or ten years of his life, he really had a chance to enjoy New York City. So it's really a New York story, more than anything else. It's not about baseball. And again, in, out of respect to people who were very close to Joe in other places of the country, like Florida and San Francisco, I got to see a different side of him because I had nothing to prove and I had nothing to lose. I mean, honestly, you know, hanging out with him didn't do anything necessarily great for me. You know, I wasn't having people bang down my doors or anything like that. But you know what I did get from him? I got a sense of style, elegance, how to conduct yourself, uh, how to deal with difficult people, how to deal with nice people, how to deal with people who don't talk at all, etc. And I, that was an invaluable education. I mean, so I think in that respect, we both were able to benefit from our, each other's association. And you know, his benefit from my point of view is that, well, he got to hang out with someone that was a little younger than him, that knew all the fun places to go to, who knew how to keep him out of trouble, who knew how to keep people who were trying to get him into trouble away from him. And it was a full-time job. I mean, it was, it was difficult because you just couldn't leave a guy like that on his, on his own at night, otherwise <laughs> it would be trouble. And I was always amazed about the attraction that women had for him. And I mean, we'd go into a place There'd be 25-year-olds trying to hit on him, 35-year-olds, 65-year-olds. I mean, it was like he had that allure about him. He had that charisma, you know, 50-something years later after playing ball. And that was more than just him being good-looking. He just had that, that way about him. He, compo he composed himself in a way where he attracted people so people wanted to be near him and with him. Well, also, for anyone who, who uh, loves New York, which I, I'm imagining uh, many people do here, uh, it's also this love story, beside the two of you, it's a love story with Joe and New York City for right. that decade. Which is a bigger thing, I think. That's the bigger story here. But you know, one of the other reasons why, I'm glad you point that out, you know, <coughs> when I finally did sit down with Richard Ben Kramer, which uh, was, which was a, a, a thing to do because I felt I wanted to make sure that not everything in that book where people were supposedly telling me he was getting ba you know, bashed and, and, and beat up, and I was able to show Richard Ben another side to, to Joe D as well. And, and actually, Richard Ben Kramer had said to me, you know, Rock, I've been interviewing all these people for the last couple of years for this book, but he goes, your, your story about Joe's New York is really the one, is the, really the one to tell. And that, that was one of the other reasons why I acknowledge Richard Ben Kramer as, as much as I did. I mean, I don't like some of the things he wrote about my friends, all right, but again, you know, you can't change history. If history is the way it is, you can't say, well, it didn't happen that way. Well, everyone has a right to interpret history and interactions the way they see fit. 
So again, I mean, Richard Ben Kramer, to his credit, also recognized the value of the Joe DiMaggio New York. Well, the, the fact that there are different sides to, to all stories, if there's one word that, that kept coming to my mind as I kept reading this about him was complex. He just seemed to be an extremely complex person. Uh, I'm not judging that in a good way or bad way. Just yeah. uh, well. it, it, did you find that uh, different than, than, I don't mean his stardom, but just as a person, how complex he was, it just seemed mo much yeah. more than anyone else. Well, look, he was, he was hard to read, but he was also you know, hard sometimes to, to figure out. You know, I think the advantage I had, and I, I hate, and I hate to say this, you know, I grew up in the old Brooklyn, not, not the cool one that everyone <laughs> wants to live in now, okay? And in the old Brooklyn, I mean, I used to chase girls like Joni when she was at Bishop Carney High School in the old days. But we had a different way of growing up. I mean, we were more about, you know, learning how to read a situation, read someone's face, read their body language, listen to what they had to say, know how to avoid what was going to come around the corner. Because let's face it, how many people we know when they walked around the corner did either get shot or run over or stabbed or whatever. And I think what attracted him to, to, to my, my situation was that he knew I was a street smart boy. He knew I grew up the tough way. We came from a very humble family, and as did he. But I think at the end of the day, what he appreciated was that he felt safe with me. And that was the difference. I mean, we had the rest of the backpack, we were all great guys, you know. They used to come dressed in their Brioni suits and they'd have their beautiful ties and, you know, and they were really elegant in their own ways and they were good people, they were very nurturing. But at the end of the day, he wasn't stupid. He wanted the street boy. Let me have the street boy next to me. Because, you know, he used to always say that I could read a room very well. You know, I guess that's something that we learned from growing up the way we did. And, you know, one of the things he mentions in the book, and whether you're a Bush fan or not, when we were once having lunch with Faye Vincent, uh, the baseball commissioner at Bravo Johnny's, which is one of our favorite restaurants, he was, he was basically, in the, in the mid-90s, applauding uh, 40, 43. He's talking about Bush, Bush's kid. Because uh, Bush's kid stuck up for Faye Vincent not to get thrown off as being baseball commissioner. And then he made a really intelligent quote. He says, let me tell you something, guys. He goes, this fellow could pick the one asshole out of a room of a thousand people. <laughs> and that, to me, was pretty profound. To get that type of a, you know, uh, an endorsement from DiMaggio told me that he really, really had a, a great, great sense of people. And then he's the one that predicted, pretty much, one day this, he could be a president and follow him in his father's footsteps. So, it's like, you know, I used to call him Nostra DiMaggioist because he was like, he, he had that, you know what, he had like that sixth, seventh sense. I'll even go past the sixth, the seventh, where he sort of knew things were going to happen before they happened. I don't know how he did it, but he just knew. But again, I think this was another example of, of why he felt comfortable with a very small group of us, particularly in the New York City area. And he would bring us all together. So all you guys, once you come, come to this thing, you know, hang out with me, because we knew how to deflect, how to get people away, because it was amazing, you know, I, I mean, I, I never really experienced idol worship before. I mean, I had a lot of respect for Billy Joel and Elton John and people like that. And, you know, again, Joe wasn't on that list, which I think was an attraction thing, thing to him, as well as an insecure thing to him as well. But I think at the end of the day, you know, the man was able to really transcend all these different environments and areas and situations to be one of the most, you know, brilliant, not just, you know, talented, brilliant, uh, you know, professional athletes I've ever met or have heard about. And I've dealt with a lot of them, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, the stuff that I do. 
And out of all the celebrity people that we see, you know, this man and probably Isaac Stern, the, the former uh, classical violinist from Carnegie Hall, they were probably the two most intelligent uh, luminaries I ever met. You know, and they also, and what made it funny, they both happened to be from the same area in San Francisco. They never met each other until they met one day in our office. And they were talking about the old days, about Alcatraz, and I'm listening to this stuff. It was a history lesson. Of which, you know, I said to Joe, I said, no, Joe, one of your, 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 you know, one of your contemporaries from the Bay Area is here. So I, he says, who's that, Doc? He goes, Isaac Stern. He goes, oh, he goes, is that that cute little fat guy that plays the fiddle? I said, yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> so I brought him to the back. And next thing you know it, they start talking about baseball, about, you know, about violin playing, and about, it was really amazing to watch the two of them, uh, you know, get together, you know. But I think the point I was trying to make is that they, they, had a, they had a clear respect and appreciation for one another, which I thought was very, very unique and fun. And that's that whole thing about DiMaggio's New York, you know. And I see two of my friends in the room, uh, George Rush and Joanna Malloy, from Rush and Malloy from the Daily News. And then, remember you guys were there the one time we brought Joe by? I mean, Joanna, stand up. Remember how, how he was that day? We had, a, we had a really great time that day, but you know, we, we, we brought him into the newsroom, which would be like unusual. Why would you know, no one would ever in a million years want everything that Joe DiMaggio would visit a newsroom, all right? But he loved being with the, with the uh, reporters that day. He, you know, he met, said hello to Joanna and George and Bill Gallo, and of course, Mort Zuckerman as well. Mort came by, did one of his cameos, couldn't believe it. Uh, Les Goodstein, who used to run The Post, was there, and, it was just a whole different type of a New York. And this man could electrify a room. I mean, we used to call it the DiMaggio effect. I mean, I would walk into the, the most crazy restaurants in the city that had star power. And the whole room literally would stop. It was like, you know, frozen. Not a word. Yes, John. Of course you are. Yeah, you could, you could, we'll get with, to the any, other questions later, but yeah, you get to go yeah, now. Any, anyone, anyone that has my same birthday, sure, can ask <laughs> June 26, by the way, one of, two one of us. The, <laughs> one of the reasons um, that so many people admire Joe DiMaggio is because of his character as an athlete after, after work. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering whether he ever spoke about some of the, you know, I don't want to say misbehavior of some of the athletes that came along later, or did he admire certain athletes that, that we have today, and, and would he given, have given any advice you know, to them? Well, that's a great question, Joanna. You know, he, he admired Cal Ripken. Actually, he made sure that he was there to represent Lou Gehrig the night that uh, Cal Ripken broke the record. They were at the, the Baltimore field, what was it? Uh, Camden Yards. Camden, Camden Yards. Um, he had a lot of respect, interestingly, uh, for Don Mattingly, thought he was super bright. Um, wasn't as crazy about the present day Yankee heroes. I mean, he thought they were good, but didn't really see anything that was so magnanimous about them. And of course, I won't go into names because I don't want it appearing on page six tomorrow. Or the other, okay? But I mean, again, there were certain <laughs> stories that were kept at the dinner table, all right, as, 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 
my friends in this room know, right, John? There's certain things we learn. We always keep our mouth shut. I didn't see anything. But, you know, we, we didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But at the end of the day, DiMaggio was not impressed with present-day baseball players. You know, he did like Griffey's kid, uh, Ken Junior. Griffey Jr. Yeah. Right. He thought he had a tremendous amount of ability. And you know, this may not be the topic here to talk about, but I think it's important. He loved Pete Rose. You know, he thought Pete Rose was the best baseball player ever. And one of the things when I sent Faye Vincent the book, I says, Faye, you and John Dowd are not going to like some of the things in this book. He goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, if it was up to DiMaggio, Rose would have been in the Hall of Fame which was fascinating. And the reason why that's fascinating because people who knew Joe knew he, had, he hated gambling. I mean, he once threatened to pull out of a game in Hawaii during the war because he heard that the, some of the Marines were betting on the game. You know, and they, so he, he absolutely could not stand betting. But he said to me, you know, Doc, you have to judge people by what they do in their arena. Because I had one, at one point, I had, I had a... a I think maybe a, a, an issue with Muhammad Ali. I thought was a great boxer, but you know we had had my, my brother and I had a cousin that got killed in Vietnam, and of course we didn't know back then what a conscientious objector was. I mean, come, coming in Brooklyn, we say, "Oh, you're a draft dodger." I mean, you go to Canada, or whatever, but it wasn't that way. So he once corrected me. He says, "Well, are you judging Ali on the right criteria? Are you judging him as a professional boxer because you don't like what he did?" Or do you think he wasn't a great professional boxer? So he basically put me in my place, which I learned from. But it was the same thing with Pete Rose. He said that there, there were far other people, like, uh, like Ty Cobb, he says, who used to beat his wife up. He goes, yeah, they let Ty Cobb into the Hall of Fame. So if it was up to DiMaggio, Pete Rose would have been in the Hall of Fame, which I think the, the younger baseball writers that are coming up, many of them actually called me about that. They said, you know, that's really fascinating. You know, because they, don't, they didn't have the bias that a lot of the older sports writers had. So in that respect, I think what DiMaggio taught us was if you're going to criticize somebody, make sure you have the right criteria and the right reference point to criticize them, which I thought was, was really kind of fascinating on his part. I mean, but this man, again, was a thinker. He was a thinker. You know, he wasn't somebody who just, you know, threw something out there. When he made a comment, you knew he thought about it. And going back to Joanna's question about the old carousing days, well, again, you know, Joe used to like to have a lot of fun too, Joanna, okay? <laughs> and he had a really good relationship with this fellow called Walter Winchell, which I think many of you know. And I think because Winchell was a big fan of his, as Joe once told me, he goes, you know, Doc, he cut me a couple, he cut me some slack. You know, he says a couple times, maybe I was out too late where I shouldn't have been, and he just said, okay, Joe, I'm not going to see you. Just do well tomorrow. <laughs> So I think he had that type of allure. But, you know, one of the, the really nice people that I thought he really paid a compliment to in the book, John and I wrote it up, was Liz Smith. And I says, you know, I says, Joe, why, why do you like Liz Smith so much? Uh, he says, well, you know, Doc, I liked her so much because she always was respectful of Marilyn, which I thought was really interesting. So after that, when someone treated his loved ones and his family members with respect, he had a natural affinity for them. So, I mean, Liz Smith was clearly a person who, how many years, George, did Liz Smith have a column? 102. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's still writing, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> but again, I think, you know, you look at his ability to interact with people, especially people who are society page people, he knew how to handle them. 
but he also gave him credit where credit was due. So again, he knew his place on the field, but he also knew his place off the field, which I think was so different. And that's going back to the original question about today's athletes. You know, from again, now we're talking. You know, Joe is is dead now. Seventeen years, you know, two days um, and about seventeen hours now at this moment. Okay. Uh, the reason why I said that because I I was fortunate enough to do the Charlie Rose tape today. Uh, I says, Charlie, I haven't been at this table for seventeen years, two days, and at that time, fourteen and a half hours. He's looking at me. I said, Well, it's the same thing. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, today's ball players are probably people who. He would respect their natural ability, but I think in terms of their uh, love for the game, their love for the way they purported themselves so that people could see them, the America's youth looking up to them, I think he would have prob probably had some issues with it. You know. By the way, there's a great uh, Charlie Rose story in this book, uh, really a terrific story, and there's also a very touching story. Some of the stories make you laugh, some of the stories, frankly, <clears throat> made me cry. And uh, I thought a very touching story was when you're talking about other Walter Winchell and society, the story when he's at a table with uh, the biggest Hollywood stars yeah. of the day, and Charlie Chaplin comes over to him. And the reason why it was him and not the other stars who, just a beautiful story. Uh, and the, and the, the discussion that you and DiMaggio had about what that meant, uh, very, very touching. And, well, uh, he, he wasn't a crowd pleaser. That was the other thing about him, or I loved about him. He, he didn't care who you were. I mean, he would insult you if, we, if you were the president of the United States. God knows what would have happened if you would have met today's president. I mean, just imagine. I mean, seriously. And I'm sorry? Well, he did know. No, he did. And he liked him, by the way. I mean, he always... That was a different... Yeah. Yeah, it was a different job back then. But I mean, again, I, I'm speaking in general. I mean, who knows what he would say. But to his credit, he always had a lot of respect for the, you know, the office of the president of the United States. And he didn't care who was in the office. He cared that the person sitting in that seat was the president. Although you make it quite clear that uh, he did not like a certain uh, a certain president. Well, again, that was his that was his choice. But you know what? I think at the end of the day, you know, if he would have sat down with with, uh, with with President Clinton for a couple hours one on one, he probably would have liked him. He would have given him a chance. Right. You know. Yes, I'm sorry. Doc, how are you? Tommy Brady. Sure. Good to see you. Do you remember the night at uh, Coco Pazzo, uh, Carolyn Mosley won the day, about seventeen plus twenty years ago. Invited me to the table, and I said, I can't. She said, You'd like to sit with you and you do this combo. And she said, uh, You'd like to sit with us. And I said, My God, she said, Man, it's either way, Sinatra, the shore, the whole thing. And she said, No, no, sit. I said, No, I said, I'm defending Mosley Vaughan, the first uh, African American senator from Illinois. So she said, Is she Democrat or Republican? <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you again, too. You grew a beard since then, huh? Uh, actually, it's a hockey. Oh, okay. All right. All right. It's a hockey. Well. Okay. Well, we lost last night, as you know. <laughs> By the way, just for those listening to the podcast, uh, that's a different Tom Brady. <laughs> uh, jo I have a lot of other questions, but I know this crowd definitely does. So as as we keep this going, we're going to enjoy, invite uh, Ro your older brother, right? It's my older brother. It's my hero, my brother John. Uh, so you, know, you know, the nickname for Johnny back in the neighborhood, we used to call him Silent but Lethal, because he he knew how to. He knew how to take care of business in his own little way. And the power he had, 
was not necessarily in his fist, but in his writing hand, because he's a brilliant writer. And when I went over to Simon and & Schuster, and they're reading this stuff, they says, this is great. Who is this guy? He says, my brother. He goes, Where, where'd you find him? I said, he's my brother. Where did I find him? My brother. I grew up with him. He used, to he used to correct my papers, you know. But you know, having John involved made it particularly nice, because many of the stories in Dinner with DiMaggio are neighborhood stories from when we grew up. And you know, I always need a little help you know, every once in a while just to remind me. You know, every once in a while, maybe we, we think something happened when it didn't. So Johnny was really good at, at keeping everything in order. So, so John, why don't you tell them about when I first asked you to do this? You thought I was crazy. I said, I don't think they want a, anything except the sports book. And Simon Schuster was very nice. And he said, well, we've obviously read this, and we don't think it's really a sports book. We think it's about the man. Because my theory was, from one of my kids' books, you have this book, you open it up, and the guy comes up. Some of you know what one of these books is. Now they have like a card, the cardboard slot, and up comes whoever you're reading about. And that was my theory. Simon and Schuster obviously thought it was smart. But um, as we have said, it's not a, a sports book. In, in, in the sense that you won't hear uh, this season of his and that season of his and how many hits he had here, or how many hits he didn't have, how, how he was handling past a certain point. It's about him. I think our gift to what's going on is the gift of this is the man. This is how he really was. Where perhaps, perhaps you wind up liking him a little bit more, or perhaps you wind up loving him a little bit more, or perhaps you won't like like him because part of him was uh, very much a harsh man in many ways. But it's not a sports book, and I was very glad that they were saying, "Listen, oh, it's fine," but. It shows the man. It, when hopefully you open up this book and you read it, he pops up, and I think we did fairly well at that. Yeah, and I think we captured it. And of course, people say, "Well, you know, people that that are from other parts of the country will say, well, that didn't happen.'" I say, "Really? Well, were you here?" <laughs> you know, like not, not to quote Aaron Burr and Hamilton, but you know, I was in the room and you weren't. <laughs> you know, it, which makes me laugh sometimes because, you know, when you spend one-on-one -on -one time with someone, you're there. You're there in the present. You don't hear it secondhand or thirdhand. But I mean, of, of course, that's one of the things you have to expect when you write a book like this. People are going to try to challenge what you said or what you did. But look, my feeling is this. I was here, and you weren't. Hear it. I'm sorry you know, at the end of the day. But, but you know, at the end, you know, Johnny and I were talking about that, that. That's one of the things that you deal with, is that you know, you're not going to make everybody happy. You know, it's, let's face it, no one makes everybody happy. But at the end of the day, if we could all, you know, they, as they say, agree to disagree, then fine. But don't tell me in California what happened in New York when you weren't here, or anywhere else for that matter. Even Florida, <laughs> okay? And that's, that's the point I'm trying to make, is that you know what? You have to remember that you know, this, this was a very, very great relationship. And, and, we, we were, and New York was blessed, by the way, to have DiMaggio during that time of his life. You know? I mean, Mayor Dinkins you know, was so gracious, and, he used to love to see Joe because the two of them used to compare how well dressed they were. <laughs> you know, and I used to say, I used to watch Joe looking at you know Dinkins' tie, and I'm saying, oh boy, here it comes, <laughs> you know, here it comes, you know, and 
And that was one of the things that, that I, I loved about DiMaggio and Dinkins. I mean, they were probably the two best-dressed New Yorkers in, in, in the city at the same time, you know. <laughs> and every time I see the mayor, I always kid him around. I said, look, you know what? Someone had to take Joe D's place, Mayor Dinkins, and he got the biggest kick out of that. You know, he was kidding around with me. He says, with all the compliments I've ever gotten, that's probably one of the nicest ones. Because he knew how Joe was particular about everything, about how he uh, would groom himself and, you know, he had to have his pants a certain way and his shirts had to be folded a certain way. And it was ritual, but it was ritual based upon the fact that the man was a perfectionist in many respects. You have to love it. You really have to love it. And at the end of the day, you know, this type of stuff rubs off, you know. But we had a good time. Who wants to lead off? We're going to have quite a few questions, so please just keep it to questions. Can you briefly um, talk about how you met? Yeah. I met him actually through, uh, as Joanna Malloy had mentioned earlier, uh, a mutual friend of ours uh, who was highly respected, New York uh, Daily News cartoonist Bill Gallo. Uh, Bill was one of the few journalists that Joe had trust for, where he wouldn't be afraid to talk to. The other person was Dave Anderson from the New York Times. You know, and I always asked him, well, what about Gallo? And Joe says, well, let me tell you, Doc, when Gallo says something, when you tell Gallo something is off the record, it's off the record. Because Joe knew over the years how to deal with press people. No offense to my press friends here. He says, remember something, Doc, they'll tell you they're not going to use it, but what they do is they trade the story with somebody else, and then it shows up somewhere in Chicago. And it was interesting, he, but he had that comfort zone with Gallo, because he felt Gallo was really, I mean, unbelievably honest, and, and someone who Joe really admired. Uh, and basically, they were talking one day about Joe's heel, because as you know, that was his famous heel spur injury that was chronicled in The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> it was something that was uh, very well known uh, in the public. And you know, basically, you know, Bill was a street guy. You know? You know, I used to always kid around with Gallo. I says, Gallo, you, go to, you get more Italian-American function awards than anybody, and people don't know you're Spanish. <laughs> so, so that was the big joke. So DiMaggio loved that. You know, he said, he says, he's Gallo, he goes, hey, Doc, is Gallo getting any more of those Italian awards? He says, no, 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 he's going to get the Spanish award now. You know? <laughs> so, so basically, uh, you know, Joe, uh, Bill said, I know this really nice kid that's been hounding me and chasing me since he's 14 years old. Johnny and I used to go to the newsroom and harass Bill Gallo to try to get one of his pictures. So we finally broke him down where he says, no, bring those kids up. And that's how we met Bill Gallo. And then we developed a relationship. Because he liked us. He knew we were sincere kids. We were from the hood. He was a nice person. So, again, what happened basically is Bill says to me, look, Dot Rock, I'm not going to tell you his name, but somebody, I may have you take care of somebody. I said, okay, well, Bill, who is it? He goes, I can't say. I said, well, is it maybe, you know, is it Brezhnev? Is it Nixon? I mean, who, who was it, right? So he waits a couple days and he calls me up. He says, listen, drop a line to this fellow. His name is Joe DiMaggio. I'm not supposed to know who Joe DiMaggio was. I mean, come on. I said, okay. And he said, just let him know that you're my friend. He's expecting a note from you. So I knew where he was staying. I wrote him a note. Never, ever, ever expecting anything. It's like a, it's a cold night. Uh, it's in the wintertime. And my office manager, this is my first office, okay. When I used to answer the doors, answer phones, make appointments, to move people out of rooms. So I finally got a young girl to help me answer the phone. She goes, you're not going to believe it. This Joe DiMaggio is here, impeccably dressed in an overcoat and a suit, and he wants to say hello to you. I says, what? Joe DiMaggio? Are you kidding me? 
So I, I right away I, 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 I take my lab coat on, put it on, go out to the waiting room, and there's Joe DiMaggio standing in my waiting room. I said, oh my God, it's Joe DiMaggio. I said, but don't show him you feel that way. So I remember reading about that. So I shook his hand, and he says, hi, and he, and he was very formal. He goes, I'm, I'm Mr. DiMaggio. I said, I know. He said, I'm Dr. Positano. He says, I know. I said, okay. And then that's how it started, you know. And, um, you know, it took about two years before he would let me call him Joe, because that was one thing about DiMaggio. He didn't like people who disrespected him. You know, you had, if you didn't call him Mr. DiMaggio, he would ignore you, unless he gave you the right. So afterwards, I said, yeah, I used to call him Joe and other things, too. I don't, I don't want to tell him what the other things were, but he was very, very into, uh, you know, respect. And that's one of the things that also rubbed off, that he taught you how to act a certain way, you know. But, again, the funny stories are what Johnny and I were talking about. You know, at the end of the day, you know, Joe was just as interested in what you had to say as opposed to just what he had to say. I found that very empowering, which means there'd be a group of us at the table, and he would ask the person to their right or his left or across the table, well, tell me about what you do. What would you do this week? Or, I'm sitting there saying, this is pretty interesting. You know, he used to engage people. And he was so smart, you know, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, he, he, could, he could talk with you about just about anything. You know? You know, one, of the, one of the stories in the book was when we had dinner with Woody Allen. And I'm watching Joe and Woody Allen speak to one another. Of course, Woody was afraid to talk because he was in awe of Joe. He was afraid to say anything. <laughs> it was really interesting. That was a movie in itself, watching that whole scenario, right? So Joe gets up to go to the men's room to wash his hands, and Woody says to me, Rock, how does he know so much about movies and credits? And I says, Woody, he says, you know, remember, he was married to two actresses. <laughs> Just like he told me years before when he was talking in his soup, goes, you know, Doc, I was married to two actresses. I said, really? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> You're kidding me. Really, Joe? You know, I said, I better shut up. I'm, I'm ahead of the game here. You know what I mean? But it was really kind of fascinating how, um, how he just knew all those areas. He could just go from, from economics to business to, to whatever because he had a keen respect for education. You know? And one of, his pride, one of his pride and joys was he always told me, he made it a point, that he says, you know, Doc, my son got into Yale on his own. It had nothing to do with me. He goes, you know, he didn't play baseball because he, he wouldn't dare play baseball, you know, at being at DiMaggio, especially at Joe Jr. But he was a really good football player. Played football for Lawrenceville, New Jersey, Lawrenceville team. And um, it was interesting because, you know, he had, he had that way of, of being very proud of education. He was very proud that his son got into a a really great school on its own. I always thought it would be really amazing. Harkening back to the old, old days, and I, you know, I remember working with the Mets for so many years and having the wonderful stories from, um, from Ralph Kiner, who was a different type, and loved telling the stories. Did, did Joe ever talk about but the old days with the writers and writing on the trains and any writers that he was able to, to trust, because those, yeah. Those were magical baseball days where they all would just yeah. hang together for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, he loved Maury Povich's father, Shirley Povich. Mm -hmm. You know, so once he said to me, you know, one of my favorite writers was Shirley Povich. So I said, well, how old was she? He goes, Doc, <laughs> it's a man. Yeah. I said, okay, Shirley Povich, okay. Of course, he says, you know, his son is a television host. Then I realized it was Maury Povich's father. He had a lot of respect for Shirley Povich. He thought that he was really intuitive. He had integrity. He used to write great things.
The other one was a photographer named Sisto, I think, Ernie Sisto, okay? Um, and of course, later on, he loved people like, you know, uh, you know, uh, Dave Anderson, loved Bob Costas, loved Tim Russert, loved Brian Gumble, loved Al Michaels, and one of the things we allude to in the book is that, you know, he once said, these are guys that I wouldn't be afraid to talk in the elevator in front of, which told me everything. Because that was the other thing, in the elevator, he invented that. It was like right out of the right out of the Untouchables. Like nobody said a thing. I go, okay, you know, it's like Joe, your shoes on fire. Don't say anything. Which uh, which was always very interesting because he, he just he just knew how to act. He knew how to you know take care of himself. Leonid, I'm interested. Uh, Leonid Macaron is one of my dear friends uh, from Russia. Uh, is Dimaggio popular in Russia? Interesting about movies. Yeah. See, John, there's hope. <laughs> yes, Ernie. Uh, uh, what, what was, what was, uh, how close were you at the end when he was obviously after the Passover? Well, unfortunately. Let me just finish the question. Oh, sure. And also, how did he, what was his relationship like with Dominic to the end? Well, again, uh, the first question was. Once he left New York to go to Florida, it was pretty much, you know, out of everyone's control. Nobody knew what was going on. You know, I made it very clear that I used to find out about his medical reports through the Associated Press, pretty much. You know, uh, there was, I guess, an information quarantine, whatever you want to call it, for whatever reason, because I know he was very <coughs> private. I mean, do I think he would have liked that? No. I think he would have liked, liked for me to have known what was going on. But of course, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to cause any trouble. It's not my style. All right, but I think uh, when I put him on the plane for the last time leaving New York in late September of 1998, I knew I wasn't going to see him again. I knew it, you know. And he gave me one of those waves where I knew it was over. He wasn't coming back, and he knew he wasn't coming back. You know? So I think I had to make peace with myself right from that day that I would probably never see him alive again. And that's exactly what happened. But you know what? What did happen though? About three weeks before he died. I was able to get a phone call in, and he had a, a helper at the time, and you know, he put Joe on the phone with me, and Joe told me he loved me. He says, I love you, Doc, and I says, I love you too, Joe. And that was the last time I ever spoke to him. But that's all I needed. That was my closure. All of the other stuff going on, you know, that he was, they, they were keeping a death watch, and this and that, it didn't mean anything to me, because you know what? We were able to break through a different level, where we were, we were two, two people, two human beings, that we're able to express at least our, our love for one another in, in, in a really significant way. And at the end of the day, that's all I needed. Did I feel good about it? I felt really good after we spoke. And I just knew that I was gonna let it go, that that was it. I'm gonna hear about it on news, uh, on, uh, on 1010 wins that you know Joe DiMaggio was passed away. And that's exactly how I found out about it. I was listening to the radio. How old was he? I'm sorry? How old was he? He was 84, 84 years old. But I mean, it wasn't an easy thing to be able to manage that whole scenario when he was in the hospital, if you can imagine. So Dominic, Dominic and Dominic, uh, the good thing about it is that Dominic and him uh, did talk. I don't know if they got back to the point where they were hanging out again, but there were some uh, entries in some of Joe's notes about wanting to get together with his brother Dominic at the insistence of Dominic's wife, wife Emily. 
which made me feel really good. I said, because a lot of people try to give her a bad rap too. And what she tried to do was get the brothers together again. But again, once he, Ernie, once he stepped on the plane from New York, that was it. It was, it was the end. You know, there was no other real contact but that maybe that, that small conversation, which to me was the most important conversation I had with him the whole time I knew him. Well, again, I think what motivated me to write the book was the fact that there's a whole generation right now of people, of millennials, of, of uh, kids that are 10 years old, 15 years old, who don't know who Joe DiMaggio is. And I think that's a shame. I mean, because he was such a historical figure, no different than Napoleon or the Wright brothers or you know George Washington. So I think the biggest reason why uh, we did the book was to help to reintroduce DiMaggio back to the new group of people that were coming up. And also, uh, from a point of view where, you know, D DiMaggio always wanted to inspire youth. And anything that he did, he did to inspire youth, whether it be playing uh, center field, whether it be speaking, whether it be doing fundraising for a hospital. And I think Joe would have liked the fact that we were getting the word out to this new group of people who really never had any great exposure to him. So I think uh, he probably would have been happy. Of course, Joe did everything with reservation anyway. And I think that considering that we're appealing to this new group of people, I think he would have been happy that his name now is becoming known in different circles. And I think that's the important thing, to not make DiMaggio die. Because I, I mentioned that to someone a few weeks ago. I, you know, I, I, I said it would be a sin if what happened to Garrick and Ruth happened to Joe. And let's face it, I mean, you know, we all know who Babe Ruth is, but we really don't. I mean, you ask a 10 or a 15-year-old kid right now playing baseball, who Joe DiMaggio is, I bet you a lot of them don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas when John and I were growing up, as I said, we knew he was Mr. Coffee and from the Bowery Bank. But the point of the matter is that this, this group now has no reference point. So at the end of the day, I think what we tried to do from a historical point of view was to, again, reintroduce the, the name Joe DiMaggio to all these new people uh, that have been born since 2000. And so at that point, what, what do you think Well, I think it's important because he showed tenacity. Uh, he showed adversity uh, in the face of every possible circumstance you could think of. He maintained his cool. He maintained his dignity. Um, he didn't ever turn his, really, turn his back on his close friends uh, or his family unless they deserved it. Okay, And I think he just shows that people today, no matter how successful they are, you can't ever lose touch with humility. You have to show humility. Because if you have no, no humility, then you have nothing. And one of the things, as I said, he hated was people's titles. You know, as, as I mentioned in the book, you know, George and Joanne, I think, were at this party, uh, Bill Gallo's 50th anniversary of the Daily News. And I walked up to one of my mentors, who happened to be the president of NYU, and I said, well, this is Dr. J. Oliva, the president of New York University. Well, it's like I committed, you know, fratricide. He goes, there you go again. I don't care what his position is. Blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, Christ. So poor, so poor Jay Oliva looks at me. I says, it's okay. So he walks away, and Jay says, my God, what was that about? He says, well, you know what? I broke a major rule. He doesn't care about your title. He doesn't care if you're the Queen of England, right, the King of Siam. It didn't matter. And, of course, if he saw a kid in the room, he didn't care who was in that room. He would gravitate toward that kid to want to talk to me. 
You want to say something? Yeah, something? Uh, so Joe was famous for not showing emotion as a player, and the famous World Series over the shoulder catch. Was, uh, was he like that as a person as well? Again, he was, again, people never really had the chance to sit down and have a cup of coffee with this man. But he, he had frustrations and he had fears like everybody else. You know, he was worried about his family. He was worried about his granddaughters, his great-granddaughters. He was worried about his son. And I think, again, sitting at the dinner table with him in a comfortable zone, he was able to, to be normal and, you know, to do the things that probably most of us in this room would want to do. So he wasn't, uh, he wasn't demonstrative, but if you were lucky enough to be sitting at the dinner table with him, you got to see a completely different DiMaggio. And Detective, you saw that too, didn't you? I did. Okay. Uh, he just makes you feel like you're the one. And you're in awe, especially in the scope of my employment. I want to have a senator, and I'm in the presence of royalty. And I got a nine millimeter, 40 layers of body armor. <laughs> okay, what do I do? I protect him or her? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sir. As a doctor, looking back at the period, the heel, did, did he ever think that, uh, it, well, was his medical treatment as good as it could have been with that heel? Because he, he retired pretty prematurely, and they say if Colfax had been five years younger, he would have come back, you know. But what about in terms of heel surgery back? Well, again, I think it inspired a whole different way of thinking because, you know, uh, when you operate on a heel, I mean, it's the, way, it's the most important part of the body for shock absorption. And if you're a professional athlete, it's all about being able to run and circle and plant and to pivot, et cetera. So I think, you know, one of the comments he made in, in George Steinbrenner's box was he did something which was very atypical DiMaggio. He took off his shoe and he points to his heel and he says, had we known someone like, like, like uh, Rock Positano when I was playing, I probably would have never ever lost those years on, you know, on, my, on my, my career. And I think he was well aware that medical technology had clearly uh, you know, advanced uh, in a very positive way. Of course, of course, sports medicine today is different than it used to be, and it's become a whole science. It's amazing. But that heel, you think about that heel, that's the most famous heel in the world. You know? <laughs> if you go to Japan, they know about the heel. You go to like Abu Dhabi, they knew about DiMaggio's heel. So I mean, so I always tell our residents at, at special surgery. I said, "Look, I said this is the most famous, probably sports injury ever." You know, that's a good question. Thank you. Any yeah. other questions? Well, we have time for one more. Anyone want to uh, be the cleanup hitter? Which uh, baseball players did he look up to? Was he good friends with teammates? Yeah, he loved Garrick. Garrick was his favorite. You know, he said that Garrick was his locker mate, and Garrick would was really very supportive of him when he broke in in 1936, which is why when, when Garrick started to show uh, the, the effects of ALS, it was very tough for Joe to see someone who he admired uh, starting to deteriorate in front of his own eyes. And due to what, oh, okay, one more. I just, I just one want more. to make a comment. I Another mean, doctor gets to ask a question. I just want to make a quick comment. Of, I thought your read was very, very good. I didn't read the book yet. I didn't get the chance to read the book oh, yet. You're gonna love it. But your read was very good. This is really not a baseball story or a story about bringing bases uh, back to the kids as much as you'd like to say. I think this is a true love story between mentor and student. 
That's and I think this is a true love story. It's, yeah, uh, it was a it's a beautiful story. And there's one particular story that's my personal favorite in the book. We don't have enough time to read it, but I'm just going to entice you with uh, the first pa it's the, the chapter is called uh, Swinging in Coney Island. <laughs> and it opens, Joe was in good form one bright summer day and wanted to get out of Manhattan. Eight pages later, it, it ends, this is an account of Joe's last at bat, a part of New York history, not known to anyone except for those lucky fans who happened to be strolling on the boardwalk that night. It was just the way he wanted it. The book Dinner with DiMaggio, published by Simon & Schuster, written by Dr. Rock Positano and John Positano. Thank you. Thank you.